we're getting to this point now where we uh, have identified that there are ways for companies to be successful by offering mental health services and wellness programs, you know, affecting their bottom line in terms of retention, reduced absenteeism, and reduced medical costs. But it's the nature of the beast mentality. You know, dealing with high stakes, complex legal matters uh, is inherently stress inducing. I believe that, you know, Currently, as the industry is structured, you know, it's very reactive and not proactive in its approach to acknowledging and addressing the elephant in the room that's been here since the the inception of the industry. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal space. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. John? In today's episode, we'll be discussing the state of mental health among attorneys practicing in the United States and how law firms and other legal service providers can foster professional environments that promote good habits for mental health and well-being. We're honored to have with us today Brian Cuban and Scott Langley. Brian Cuban is a Dallas-based attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate. He's a graduate of Penn State University and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Brian has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April of 2007. Brian's most recent best-selling book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, is an unflinching look back at how addiction and other mental health issues destroyed his career and how he and others in the profession redefined their lives in recovery and found redemption. I mentioned this following fact only because Brian said we occasionally talk about sports, but Brian is also the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur Mark Cuban. So maybe we'll get into some sports things. And I certainly intend to when we get into the pet peeve in any event. Uh, uh, Not about the Mavericks, by the way. But uh, Scott Langley currently serves as head attorney coach of Emerge, a company he founded to address the professional and personal development challenges faced by attorneys. Scott's passion is to help attorneys maximize their professional and personal performance. He has a master's degree in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University and a JD from Loyola Law School. He has over 25 years of experience in the legal and personal coaching industries. Prior to founding Emerge, Scott spent seven years as a litigation associate working on complex cases at Brobeck, Flager, and Harrison, and he's held several in-house positions. Scott currently works with Legal Innovators, and we're grateful that he does, as a performance coach for our junior attorneys. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Scott, for joining us today. Well, guys, we're looking forward, as John said, to really getting into a conversation and appreciate uh, both of you uh, being willing to share your experiences and your expertise with, with our audience I'll just set the stage a little bit and then we'll dive or a little further, I should say, uh, and then we'll dive into the questions. So as background here, the state of mental health of U.S. attorneys has long been a cause of concern. 
uh, as we all know and have discussed. The legal profession is notorious for its competitive pressures, high stakes, and long hours, some of this resulting in an industry characterized by burnout and extreme stress. It is not surprising that lawyers report almost three times the rate of depression and almost two times the rate of substance abuse as other Americans, and law ranks among the top five careers for suicide. The added stressors of the recent COVID-19 pandemic and feelings of isolation associated with over a year of working from home have made the situation even more dire. ALM's 2021 Mental Health and Substance Abuse Survey of Legal Professionals found that 37% of respondents uh, reported that they felt depressed in 2020, an uptick of nearly 6% from the previous year of 2019. 71% said they had experienced anxiety, up 7% from the previous year, and 14% said they have a different mental illness, up over two percentage points over the previous year. The influence of the pandemic on mental health of lawyers and staff is striking. When asked whether the pandemic has made their mental state worse, 70% of respondents said yes. So with these numbers setting the stage for us, we look forward to this important conversation. And I'd, I'd like to say, Scott and one of our associates, Nadia Lee, were co-authors with me on a recent article in The American Lawyer called The Boiling Point and talking about this mental health crisis. I hope we can go further into some of those insights for our audience. So I'll start with you, Brian. And if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing some of your personal experience regarding addiction, regarding mental health, how those came upon you, and then how you found your way to where you are now as this noted speaker and, and author on the subject. Thank you. And just to, for the Reader's Digest, uh, I had struggled with problem drinking, uh, cocaine addiction, uh, clinical depression, two trips to a psychiatric hospital, the first in 2005 after I became suicidal. I've been to jail and uh, three failed marriages, all related to my drug and alcohol use and inability to uh, allow myself to love and be loved. And for me, it was all built on snapshots of trauma. I'm a big believer in the adverse childhood experiences and how they play into how adults process trauma and how that trauma uh, manifests itself into behavior. There was a lot of bullying in my childhood. Uh, I was an overweight kid. I was uh, bordering on obese. I was severely bullied. I was even uh, physically assaulted over my weight. My brother Mark had given me a pair of uh, shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants this was back in the era of John Travolta and Mark taught disco and I wore him to school, but Mark, uh, they fit Mark okay. The, the pants on me, my butt looked like 15 cats back there. I had to uh, spray the water bottle on and jump up and down to get them on. But, and these kids decided they looked funny on me and uh, tore them off me a mile from school down to my Fruit of the Loom underwear and threw, shredded them and threw them out in the street. And that event uh, really defined how I saw myself as a traumatic event, as a snapshot. And I believe we are all in a, all accumulations of snapshots of various levels of trauma in one form or another. And so all of these things, and I was fat shamed at home and I don't blame my parents, believe me, for the things I went through. Uh, they, they were repeated cycles of my mother who had her own mental health issues. She was fat shamed by her mother who was fat shamed by her mother. And so parents don't cause addiction, parents don't cause mental health issues. There's a difference between cause and correlation. But these things all came together 
in my uh, freshman year at Penn State to manifest themselves as bulimia. That transitioned into problem drinking at Penn State. That transitioned into cocaine addiction as a lawyer. That transitioned to two, two and a half failed bar attempts, uh, all related to my pension for cocaine and alcohol instead of studying. Uh, my career as a lawyer collapsed. And uh, finally, in 2007, I went into recovery. Um, I'm, I'm going to, uh, John, I'm going to just stay with us for maybe a couple quick follow-ups and Scott, just so you can kind of prepare, wonder um, after after we finish or finish the, the follow-up with Brian, um, if from some of your coaching, you have any backdrop, uh, either of your own experience, uh, maybe some of the stuff around imposter syndrome or some of the people, obviously not by names, that you've seen coach and how that's manifested. But Brian, I, I guess back to you for a second, when you were at Penn State and then when you were um, at, in law school, and maybe even practicing, were there resources? I mean, as you were going through some of these things that- Uh, It was a different time. You have to remember, I graduated uh, Penn State in 1983 and Pitt Law in 1986. No, there were were none I was aware of. This was a time where from the standpoint of addiction, we weren't talking about residential treatment or anything like that, right? It was very, I mean, it's stigmatized, it's still stigmatized today, but it was exponentially worse back in the early to mid eighties, there was no discussion at all. You were either knew someone who might've been in 12 step. And for those who don't know what that is, the most well-known is Alcoholics Anonymous, but there are other ones. And so you were either in 12 step, you were maybe in a hospital, literally in a hospital ward, or you weren't in recovery. There really wasn't a talk a lot. At, At Pitt Law, we didn't have a Dean of Students yet. Deans of students are frankly relatively new things in terms of the history of law schools. So, and the, and the dean of students is generally the point person in terms of when you're struggling with something. At least that's, in my experience, that's how it is in speaking at many law schools. So, no, there was really no one. And I was so ashamed of myself. I literally hated myself, literally, was so ashamed that I didn't think anyone would understand. I didn't think anyone could help me. And I never told a soul. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for, for sharing that, um, uh, Scott, and then I'm going to uh, uh, kick it over to John. I know he's going to jump in as well. Um, but Scott, um, any experiences in terms of grounding the audience on, on what, what some of the other, I guess, indicia uh, of mental health that you've seen uh, over your time or that you know, you've confronted uh, watching lawyers uh, ascend in the profession? It's interesting, Brian. And Brian Cuban, as, as you mentioned, you know, in the era when you started practicing, there was no resources and, and no acknowledgement that there was a need for resources. It hasn't changed much in that time. I think what would be ideal is for new lawyers coming out to practice. We have trainings, uh, in-house trainings from firms, from companies, highlighting the need for mental health services. For existing attorneys, I think there's also the need to initiate or implement training sessions that focus on wellness and, and mental well-being. To answer your question, Brian, about uh, you know any anecdotes, anecdotes, you know they range from you know feeling isolated, coming into a uh, a big law firm, maybe not having the same backgrounds as other attorneys in the firm, and this speaks to the imposter syndrome that uh, that we've be, we've been exploring, ranging from the stresses related to you know what do I wear to the firm company summer event, or, you know, how do I dress appropriately for client meetings, or how do I handle myself in a professional environment? Those seem to be minor stresses, but they, they, they add up. And it's, it's, it's a multitude of events that add up to, you know, 
trouble down the line. Then you talk about the extreme complexities and, and, and high stakes that we have in the legal profession, which inherently leads to stress across the board. I mean, the legal industry since it's begun, begun has been a stressful industry. So coupling all those dynamics, and then as Brian mentioned earlier, you know, from past childhood traumas experiences, if we put all those together, it creates a perfect storm. And with no outlet and with no opportunity to express yourself and with no acknowledgement or accepting by firm culture, company culture in this legal industry, that feeling of isolation and, and self-festering is just left to, to attorneys on their own. And it could lead to you know, greater challenges uh, down the line. Yeah. Hey, John, I, I know you're going to go in with your question. If I could ask you something for our audience, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but for those that don't know, John spent 40 years of his career at Sherman and Sterling and 30 as a partner, uh, various management committees, policy committee at Sherman and Sterling. And I guess I'm saying all this for some sort of context, given your breath. Uh, and if you don't mind, John, before you go into your question, I wonder if you could just share with the audience, you know, any thoughts that you have on the historic nature of this issue, right? Uh, you and I have talked about this before. It did just pop up now, um, but it's been going on. And it, can you maybe talk a little bit about? Yeah. 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 I was going to do that in any event. Okay. In, uh, introducing the second question, the question I was going to ask next. Um, for context, just by way of background, as Brian said, so I was a summer associate even before you started crying in uh, 1979, <laughs> if that's possible. So if you think that the mid eighties were the, the dark ages, um, 1979 was, you know, basically to my kids, that's the equivalent of 1922 or something for me. <laughs> that's right. Um, and, um, and, you know, I do want to talk about, and I'll share some, some perspectives as we introduce this topic. I do want to talk about why the legal profession struggle so much in this area. And in doing so, just say, I, I saw this from the perspective of an associate and then a partner. And for me personally, the two most stressful periods were at the beginning of each of those roles. Because at the beginning, when I started as an associate, I felt I was the weakest link in an incredibly important chain. And if I didn't find every case that could conceivably be out there, someone would lose their job and potentially die. It was almost, it felt like life and death. And so I went from a relatively carefree law student <laughs> to feeling the weight of the world on me very quickly without really knowing what I was doing at the beginning. That was incredibly stressful. Then, then when I became a partner, you know, and I was a litigator, you go as a litigation associate in a big firm to being mostly second chair on things and some small things. And all of a sudden in the instant, that, that instant between being an associate and a partner, you are apparently acquired all sorts of trial experience and management experience and how to handle client experience that you didn't get trained for, but you are now asked to lead on. And that was another stressful time until in both instances, it's just a matter of getting your feet under you. But it is, so when we say, and I looked at the statistics to talk about the number of associates in law firms or, or law, lawyers, not just associates who feel a high degree of stress, I think we have to take bear in mind that it is a stressful profession by nature. And if you were to talk to a lot of partners in law firms, they'd say, well, yeah, I'm, I feel stressed. We all feel stressed. <laughs> you know, stress can be a motivator. So I think we should discuss what it is about the legal profession and then layer on the pandemic, because I was part of a team discussion recently with a big case and a lot of young associates. And it was obvious to me that the pandemic 
is taking its toll. The energy level was down, almost a feeling of depression and resignedness, you know, amongst the team members. Um, I think the isolation is really wearing on people now. So if we add all that in, and then the normal lack of control that lawyers have, this morning, a, a lawyer I'm working with on a case who's been trying to uh, achieve a, a consensus amongst the, uh, on, on our own side, by the way, amongst the large team of lawyers as to the best way forward on something said, I think I've lost the will to live. And, and I said, jokingly, right? And I said, uh, you know, welcome to, welcome to my world, which is trying to control the uncontrollable. And that is another level of stress I think we all experience in the legal profession. So with that background, I'd love to hear from both of you, maybe start with you, Scott, and then Brian, on what it is that's unique about the legal, we'll talk later about what the legal profession can do about it, but what's unique about the legal profession and why is it so acute? Um, I think it goes to what we've all been saying uh, initially is that, there's no acknowledgement of the need for mental health in the legal profession. I think slowly but surely we're getting to this point now where we uh, have identified that there are ways for companies to be successful by offering mental health services and wellness programs, you know, affecting their bottom line in terms of retention, reduced absenteeism and reduced medical costs. But like you mentioned, um, John, you know, it's, it's a nature of the beast mentality, you know, dealing with, you know, high stakes, complex legal matters uh, is inherently, you know, stress inducing. I believe that, you know, currently as the industry is is structured, you know, it's very reactive and not proactive in its approach to acknowledging and and addressing the elephant in the room that's been here since the the inception of the industry. And it's interesting too, because on on previous uh, Legal Innovators podcast, you had on um, Shoban Hanley uh, from Oric, who had just blatantly stated that, you know, it's an existential crisis facing our profession and we need to attack it now. I think the biggest challenge for all, uh, uh, not not just you know the legal industry, is that from the top we're not trained to identify warning signs, uh, and then we don't know how to provide assistance to struggling attorneys. So I think that um, is probably the the, the biggest uh, uh, angle we could tackle to unwind this problem. Brian, from your perspective, um, you know you talked about the various things that came from your background, which may have played themselves out anyway. But I have to believe the pressure cooker of the law, you know, added to, to, to the problems. Yeah. No, thank you, John. Um, and, and as you said, um, <laughs> we'll say more maybe at the, at the end. Um, I think we've given a prelude with uh, Scott and talking about the performance. But I think this is something that's, uh, you know, it's deeply important to everybody on, the, on this podcast, obviously. Um, and Legal Innovators is going to try doing more. Uh, in the in the area. So uh, I'll go to uh, both of you. Maybe we'll start with Brian, since I think John started with Scott, and we'll just kind of keep pinging back and forth. But you guys were probably expecting this. And that is, and Scott, I loved your early warning uh, point that you made in your in your intro. So maybe uh, one or both of you will expand on this. And that is what can firms uh, and companies do to promote mental well being and ensure that their attorneys aren't pushed into crisis. And Brian, I'll maybe just make a slight um, asterisks here, uh, as you and John were talking about sports. And this may be the first time where we can introduce the sports topic, right? Because legal law isn't the only uh, profession that has high stakes. And we see a lot more athletes right now. Kevin Love, I heard somebody talking about on the NBA this morning, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, 
Um, so I think that there are threads that maybe we can take from other industries as well. So, you know, to the extent that you want to um, share uh, specific things that law firms and corporations can do, and if there's any best practices that you've seen uh, from your writing and speaking, we'd love to experience those. Sure. We all, as, as it's been mentioned here, everyone, whether it's the legal profession or whatever you do, stock work, whatever, everyone deals with stress. Everyone has anxiety. Everyone gets depressed, right? But we, that, that's what I call normative discontent. We all go through these things. But what happens is you also bring all the snapshots of your life to that level of normative discontent where you can function. So now you, you have that level, but you didn't take it where you were able to function. But now we have, say, the pandemic where all of a sudden you're tipped over that line. Okay, because of all of those snapshots of stress and trauma interacting with that, where maybe you could go out and have a couple drinks and it was a stress release. Remember, not everyone in the profession is an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Most can handle their alcohol. So, but now all of a sudden you're drinking a little too much. Now all of a sudden that depression is uh, the bottom, depression bottom is existing for a little longer and you're unable to pull out of it. Now the anxiety is now keeping you from being able to function the way you used to. That is what I see. For me, it really was looking back at all the snapshots of my life that made me who I was and tipped me over into behaviors that were unhealthy. And we can also look at it from a stigma standpoint as well. There is the level of stigma, and I talk about this from the standpoint of addiction and alcohol problem drinking. There is a level of stigma that society faces related to, say, drug addiction or alcoholism that everyone goes through, no matter who you are, right? Uh, people say it's a choice, it's a moral failing, and this and that, and make you feel bad about it. Just snap out of it. Pull yourself out. Just stop drinking. Don't do that next line, and you should be good. But lawyers have that double layer of stigma added on top of it that comes with the profession. I'm going to not make partner. I'm going to uh, lose my, my. I'm going to lose my job. I don't have the resources I need. Who can I tell? If I tell anyone, it will be seen as weakness and I will never achieve this or that. That is the stigma that the legal profession piles on it. So we have two levels that can suppress a lawyer's desire to share, seek help, tell someone. That is the way I look at it. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Brian. Um, and, and Scott, I guess the same question, what more can we be doing uh, to promote um, mental wellness? And, and I wonder, uh, to the extent you want to speak to it, um, if, you, if you want to tinge your comments with any of the racial overlay that we may see here, um, one stat that jumps out to me, uh, and, and John pointed to this, exacerbated during COVID, but we saw a, a, a study saying that 31% of Black associates during the pandemic had contemplated suicide. So maybe the question will be, uh, how do we better promote mental wellness? And are there special racial concerns, or, or I should say, um, diverse or inclusive, because it's, of course, it's not just racial that we should be aware of? Yeah, I, I mean, I could we could talk about it for hours, which we don't have. I think the legal profession has always considered itself sort of the Marines for white collar people um, in a way like stuck it up. We did it. You'll do it. You know, we're not very warm and fuzzy by nature. We don't seem to value that. And I think that adds to it. And we could talk later about what the legal profession needs to do to address a whole new generation of people who have different expectations. 
but since we don't have time for all of that, I know Brian wants to talk about a, another topic. Sure, I can talk about the one thing I hear constantly, and I'm going to it. Big law, medium law, boutique law, and solo law are, are all different discussions. I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, big law and what I've heard from associates and AM law firms. Uh, we have a, we have firms putting in these, uh, especially within the AM law in the uh, ABA wellness pledge, putting in all these different things, right? Putting all these uh, mental health programs, putting in the systemic re, uh, ways of re, uh, talking about it to people. But I'll get emails from associates at, uh, at firms and say, look, that's great that they have all this stuff. But now my, my partner is asking me to put in 100 hours on something that doesn't have the deadlines that he's, that, you know, he's creating these deadlines, forcing me to do something, creating the stress or she obviously, excuse me, that uh, is, is not needed. They have, they are, they put in all these things, but they are not walking the walk. That is the constant commentary I get from associates in big law, that the firms are talking the talk, but not walking the walk. You have to vocalize top down that it's okay to not be okay. And that doesn't mean that it's okay to put in bad performance. That doesn't mean it's okay to malpractice your cases, right? But we have to get away from this. Uh, we have to get away from this, just this uh, narrative that if you were unhealthy, you were automatically unethical. That is not true because that, I, I think that is how some associates feel. And therefore, they could not go to anyone. Yeah, Brian. Um, I, I think first, uh, you know, and what I'll keep pushing is that, you know, acknowledgement of the problem from the industry, from firms, from companies ha has to be a paramount. And to speak to what John mentioned, the Marine mentality, I believe it has to start from the top. It has to start from the partnership within the firm, the folks that are in, in charge of the firms, that they have to set a tone uh, and state that we treat um mental health and well-being of our associates and partners uh, as top priority. Um, and it's with the understanding that if everyone is performing at a high level, uh, is managing their stress well, that it will produce and yield fantastic results for clients. So that, you know, there, there, there's, there's the benefit in, in doing that as well. Um, but interestingly, starting at the beginning, uh, is, is what I really believe uh, in the in the initial HR sessions in, in, in the employee handbook to highlight that there are mental health services, wellness programs that we have. There's health insurance that we provide. Employer-sponsored health insurance programs offer therapeutic services because sometimes often folks don't know, believe it or not, where to look and where to seek, you know, services. And like you mentioned, Brian, I think in a, in a previous podcast or article with the pandemic, Availability of resources is 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 nil right now. So ongoing trainings uh, for existing attorneys and partners, uh, in-house wellness programs, uh, I, I think are awesome. And to speak to your question, Brian, uh, about the you know diversity and inclusiveness issue, I just think that there is not enough support in this regard. I think that the the numbers of, of diverse attorneys, associates, partners that exist in the industry is very small, which tends to lead to the isolating and isolation and not knowing where to seek help, not knowing how to ask for help. Adding on what Brian, Mr. Cuban had mentioned about, you know, adding another layer, maybe a triple layer now, uh, showing a sign of weakness. Like, hey, wait a minute, I'm not even supposed to be here in this room. I'm not even supposed to be here in this firm. How did I even get here? 
if I say I need help, I'm going to be perceived as weak and not capable of being able to execute on my job. So untangling that, making the firms aware that they need to address that as well, uh, I think will lead to greater results from the industry yeah. overall. Yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm going to uh, turn, turn back to John for our, for our last question. Yeah, and, and just to pick up for a second, Scott, on that, I think that if firms are going to have to work really hard to create trust, because if they create trust, then people will confide. But they're going to have to convince associates that it will be anonymous, that if they seek help, it will not get into you know, their professional career development path. Otherwise, they'll, they'll obviously avoid that path uh, for fear of, as you said, Brian, destroying their own careers. And so um, that's going to take work by the law firms. But both of you touched on this, and I only want to take a minute, but are there any resources for attorneys that are struggling with or want to avoid uh, having these issues who are in danger of it, or any other mental health issues that you're aware of that haven't already mentioned today? I'll start with you, Brian. Brian with an I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And the, 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 the most obvious is your lawyer's assistance program who can funnel you to all kinds of other resources, right? They can be a one-stop shop for many different resources. Uh, I know there is a distrust of the program on many levels. A lot of lawyers do not believe that it is in fact confidential, wherein uh, every jurisdiction I'm aware of it is by statute. And uh, it is not part of the ar an arm of the state bar where they're going to find out. But for lawyers who just tell me they are just not going to use it, just no, that's not happening. There are other resources. Uh, obviously, you have your mutual aid groups like uh, 12 Step, AA, and all those things. Uh, if you're suffering from depression, you have the Lawyers Depression Project is out there. Uh, wonderful resources for lawyers, uh, and it can be completely anonymous. You have another online resource called In the Rooms, where you can find all kinds of different meetings uh, for just about any type of uh, mental health issue and participate. So there are resources, they're just not well publicized. The legal profession tends to be a 12-step centric profession in terms of alcohol and addiction. So I speak from that standpoint, but there are other, there are many other paths that people just don't know about. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Scott, anything you mentioned, counseling and, and um, all the things that you said at the beginning, having uh, sessions and workshops, anything other than that that you're aware of that is out there? Absolutely. I think uh, in a previous podcast with, with Legal Innovators, you had identified that Latham, I believe, has been the catalyst for an in-house wellness committee or teams that they have within the firm. So I think that the establishment or development of that for lar large firms would be beneficial and helpful. The American Bar Association has a wealth of resources, articles, and uh, self-care solutions to address and combat mental health and substance abuse issues. Even the, you know, there, there's, there's NAMI, the National Helpline Resource Directory, LBGT Bar Association has resources available. And then the Legal Innovators Platform offers coaching, performance coaching, but also coaching, which I think is valuable for this industry. And then there's also even tech applications that may be available, uh, something like Refresh Couples, like Butterfly Health, uh, those platforms offering, you know, uh, on the spot crisis intervention. So combined with what Brian has said, that I think that's a, th these are pretty, pretty helpful resources for attorneys. Yeah. Um, so guys really appreciate it. I want to say just a couple of things as we, uh, as, as we close out and then come back to you. One of our crack producers has uh, thrown in a good suggestion that we should uh, have a catch all topic, right? If there's anything that you guys want to talk about, 
um, that we may have missed. But wanted to thank you again, first of all. Well, I know John will, will echo that in a few moments. This is such an important topic. I hope that at some point in the future, we can invite you guys back and maybe talk about it again. For our audience, and again, not to be too shameless, but maybe a little bit shameless, some of the early warning signs, uh, identification, best practice structure is outlined in our article uh, on our website, legal-innovators.com or on law.com, and that's called Boiling Point, Why Mental Health is the Existential Crisis Facing the Legal Profession. As we've noted with Scott's presence, uh, Legal Innovators is already doing this uh, internally, and that is uh, performance coaching, uh, wellness, stress management, and then we'll have a, a funnel that will help people find those resources that they may need. So uh, look for that to go external in the near future, but we wanted to highlight those. So before we turn to our favorite topic or John's favorite topic of pet peeves, um, let me ask, uh, tongue in cheek, obviously, uh, let me ask Brian and Scott, is there anything that we missed or is there something you would highlight for the audience as, as we wrap up? Uh, do you want me to go first? Sure, Brian. Yeah, sorry about that. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, well, one thing that I think needs uh, fleshed out is that not only should we be taking care of ourselves, but I think as a profession, we have a responsibility to take care of each other. We tend to get wrapped up in our own lives and, and, and when we're very busy, but it really is okay to ask your colleague how he or she is doing. And uh, I call it the two ask role. Ask someone how they're doing. And before the conversation breaks, ask them if they know that if they want to talk, they can come to you. And uh, be, that, be that cog in the continuum of wellness, right? And because uh, you, could, you could change a life. Yeah, Brian, we appreciate that. It's one of the things that we highlight is uh, change in sleep patterns, change in how somebody's showing up, change in appearance, and all those things that you, as you correctly point out, um, maybe by asking that or using your two uh, ask rule. So thank you. Um, Scott, anything that we missed or that you would want to throw out uh, before we move to our final segment? Yeah, I think we talk about the legal industry, um, but what we, what we don't talk about is our law schools. You know, if we can maybe begin the mental health acknowledgement and awareness at that stage, it speaks to what John said, that when associates come in, partners have to be aware that there's a whole level of expectations for this generation of attorneys coming in. But if we can start to prepare them in the law school phase, I think it will just be, it will translate very well as they're entering into the professional stage. And so if the, the expansion to include and incorporate law students, I think in this conversation is important. And I think that's something that we, we, we didn't touch upon during the conversation, but I, I, I thought it was important to include. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks for that, Scott. Yeah, I was just talking on, a, uh, on another, actually with a, with a professor from Pitt Law on this topic yesterday and, and Siobhan Hanley over at, uh, over at Oric. And together we talked about that. How do you establish those uh, good habits early? Uh, and I know that's something you've brought up for our consideration, Scott. So we appreciate that. Um, Since you bring up Pitt Law, yeah. they happen to have their own student mental health fund mm -hmm. uh, to help pay for uh, mental health care for students, struggling students. Yeah, I was going to say example more should follow. I agree with John. So uh, as we move into our pet peeves, and we always let the guests go first. So uh, we'll, we'll start with Scott and Brian. We'll give you a minute. Uh, and this is really just meant to be a funny session. Um, something you can't let go, something that's irritating you, or if you want to play a wild card, just uh, whatever random thought you want to share with the audience. Uh, so we'll do, we'll, we keep these short and sweet, but it's just something to uh, uh, to punch it up and, and show the personality of a great guest uh, like you all that we have. So Scott, 
Is there a, is there a pet peeve or uh, something else that you would like to share with the audience as we close up? Well, the biggest pet peeve I have now is with uh, the technology that is available uh, and that children have access to. The cell phone, the video games, it just drives me crazy. When my kids, you know, I have 12-year-old twins and they want to beeline to these devices and to these uh, items and not go outside and play. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the neighborhood concept, uh, at least not here where I am in, in, in Los Angeles, doesn't exist anymore where you just go outside and whatever sport is being played on TV is a sport you played in the street or you played in the backyard. Um, I can't get the kids to go outside. So my biggest pet peeve is like, I got to get you guys out of the house. For my sanity as well. <laughs> exactly. Have you thought of making it intolerable for them to stay in the house? That's why, that's why most kids run away, Scott. <laughs> exactly. you, you, you need John to consult with you on this. I'm sure he'll have some tips. <laughs> uh, Brian, any anything you'd like to bring up? My pet peeve is when people assume I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan yeah. because I live in Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would bother me too. No. Born and raised in Pittsburgh, I bleed black and gold. There you go. There you go. Uh, I love that football season is coming up. Uh, John, it looks like you're raring to go. Well, my, my uh, you know, I can't keep using my pet peeve as having to do these pet peeves. Um, but so I'll, I'll actually do a pet peeve. I'm really running out of patience with the culture of NFL fans, which is getting worse and worse as we're able Mm. to uh, magnify every block in a practice, which is basically you're as good as your last play, you know, until you make a great play 10 10 minutes later and then you're an All-American and a Hall of Famer and then you're terrible again and the team... I this immediacy and no patience yeah. and it's worth because now <laughs> we're reporting on you know every practice how how some rookie did in practice whether the rookie shoe came off in practice and how they got in a bad off to a bad start because their shoe came off and it's it's really driving me crazy actually I love the NFL <laughs> I love football be a little patient it's a 17 game season you know yeah yeah, yeah. We, we could probably Eric, all use Brian, a little. Brian, your Pittsburgh Steelers were what and O last year? At what point in the season? Something like twelve and O? What were uh, they? Eleven. Eleven I think. and O. Yeah, then, yeah. That uh, we'll we'll see what happens no, this I year. Mean, but it's uh, a long season, right? And and teams yeah, lose three yeah. or four games, and the world doesn't end, and then they win four, and they're okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, but as the as the Steelers showed, that was kind of uh, the the. the the losing, the, when the losing came, it was kind of representative of how they That's right. So I will make uh, one of our producers make him very happy. I'll keep my pet peeves to one. And I actually, since I have the most vociferous uh, uh, pet peeves of us all, I'm going to be nice today. Um, I've moved into a new neighborhood. I won't say where, so nobody comes and targets by egging my house. But it has been so nice to return to like a kinder, gentler America. When I moved in, two days later, a neighbor actually brought me, baked and brought me banana bread and <laughs> check on me and the dog. I'm like, whoa, like, is this still America? So it is possible that we could be nice to each other. And uh, I'm gonna go off script and just say how much I'm enjoying this new experience. Brian, just to be cynical, did you give the banana bread to the dog first before you ate it? <laughs> I don't like, see that that shows the, the cynicism of our society. Somebody's like, did you make sure she ate a piece first? No, I. I 
I just went right in and it was good. And uh, no, Major, unfortunately, didn't get and Major's my dog, didn't get any. Um, so with, with that, we'll, um, we're going to kind of go casual right now and, and thank you guys. You know, look, we loved having you guys and we appreciate this. It was an honor to be asked to come on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so appreciative. Thank you both. So uh, really an interesting conversation. Boy, what great guests and some in- great insights that they, that they left for our audience and things to think about. John, you know, my head's buzzing. Um, I'm sure yours is too. Um, I wonder if you, you might share um, what you thought and what some of your takeaways are. Well, I, you know, what I thought was, wow, what a daunting task <laughs> because, uh, you know, the legal profession the legal profession is filled with, I think, very, very good intentioned, very, very uh, intelligent people who try hard to get to rational solutions all the time. But for various reasons, we seem to have found ourselves in a place where we're not nurturing as a profession. We seem to have developed a culture where that is considered to be as weak or irrelevant or a waste of time. Um, And I do think that uh, maybe I don't go so far as some people to say, I think it's existential today, but I do think that uh, while it is true that many of us went through that as associates, that doesn't mean it was the right thing to have gone through. And this is a, this simply is a different generation of people uh, coming up. I'm always reminded of uh, when I played football in high school, the hazing that uh, my my class went through, which we expected to be able to um, you know continue um, mm-hmm. until there was a, a a young good player who complained to the coach about it, and the coach came in and said, "Look, this is just a, and this was a long time ago. These right. this younger generation is different. You got to cut it out. Um, it's not good enough that you it happened to you. Um, you know." this is the end. And we have to accept that and move on and just accept that it's not a good excuse to say it happened to me. So it has to happen to you, (laughs) especially if we know there's a better way. Now we're not going to eliminate stress. (laughs) I mean, stress is inherent, right? In, in every Mm -hmm. high performing culture. Um, I'm not even sure it's all bad, if it can be managed and if uh, there are outlets and if it can be kept in perspective, that's Mm -hmm. where I think we have to work hard. And that isn't going to be easy because it takes a lot of time. And the partners who uh, Scott was referring to, who are in control of the firm are themselves stressed. They're stressed to perform. They're stressed by their clients. They're stressed by the time demands. So, they don't have a lot of time to work on someone else's stress, um, but that's not an excuse. That's why I think it's a difficult problem, but we're going to have to start as a profession, I think, to address it, or we, it's tied to the other existential threat that I think the profession really does face, which is how are we going to um, maintain a pipeline of young people who want to become future partners of the firm? And this is just one aspect that needs to be worked on. Yeah. Um, right. Lots to parse. Uh, and I, and I really like, I mean, there's, you know, companion point, one that Brian brought up and, and one that you're saying there, John, which is, 
we have stress, right? We're not going to, this isn't all of a sudden going to be some, you know, um, utopia where we go and, and, and it's not, it's not presence, how we deal with that. And, you know, I'd like to speak to uh, you, the former you and those, those, those folks that are in the seats of power at some of these firms and, you know, Brian's point of uh, coming from the top down, right. And, and saying that this is important and it's okay if you want to go um, and get these, uh, get these resources. And to me, it goes into the environments of belonging and inclusion that we all want to build um, anyway. Um, I think that the points of maybe being a little bit more human and, and worrying about each other on, on that level, that's the, the right moral thing. Um, and maybe the last observation I had is something that, that Scott brought up, what the numbers show. If people do have stress or have some of these uh, anxiety or things that are dragging uh, or tugging at them, um, it is more productive. It's more profitable for firms to have people go um, and get the resources that they need. It cuts down on absenteeism. It cuts down um, on other bad things that can come out of dealing with stress in, in, in poor ways in ways that, that impact the bottom line. So we can look at it as human problem. We can look at it as being more profitable, but all signs point to with, uh, you know, data uh, and qualitative that we should be focused on this. So um, enjoy the conversation. And I think there was, uh, there was many good takeaways and we should continue down this, down this, down this road. Absolutely. So to our audience, thank you again for listening to the law in black and white. Thank you to our guests again, Scott Langley and Brian Cuban for such a stimulating conversation today. We hope everyone enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com as our Brian, Brian Parker said earlier for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time. And in the meantime, please be safe. I do want to add one particular thing specific to today's topic. If you know someone or you yourself are, are suffering from a mental illness or you're struggling emotionally or you have concerns about your or someone else's mental health, you can get help through the crisis text line by texting capital H, capital O, capital M, capital E, so the word HOME in caps, to 741741 to receive 24-7 anonymous free crisis counseling, in addition to the various resources that we discussed during today's podcast. 